Welcome to another instalment of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast, where we connect leaders in the gaming industry to discuss your passions and challenges. I'm Sol, and today I'll be your host, and I'm joined by a fantastic panel to discuss immersive gaming worlds. I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, guys, so before we dive into our topics today, we're going to work our way around the rooms just to get some quick introductions on who you are, what you do, and what you're passionate about. So, Tobias, would you like to kick us off? Sure. Uh, so, my name is Tobias Dolish. Uh I'm Swedish, but I've married a German girl, so I have a German last name. I'm currently working at Jaeger on an unannounced project and passionate. I mean, I'm super passionate about level design and designing worlds, which is kind of why I wanted to be part of this topic. Because, yeah, that's where my interest lies in general when it comes to development. Awesome. Thanks, you. And Mark, could you jump in next? Yes, uh, I'm Mark Vesolo, working as art director for Project Games um, since um, there since nine years now, I think. Um, started off as a 3D artist there, and then later became the art director. And we are currently working on Stray Bait, which is going to be released this month. Um, and I absolutely love stylized worlds, RPGs, building nice and kind of unique experience for players um, and worlds that they kind of hopefully didn't see that like that before. Yes, Mark, and finally Adrian. Ah, hi, I'm Adrian Wüst. I'm 32 years old, a passionate gamer all my life. Um, I've been working in the gaming industry for a little longer than seven years now. I was at uh, Handy Games in uh, Bavaria working on mobile games, then came to Berlin to Sandbox Interactive to work, uh, I think, like two and a half years on the fantasy MMORPG Albion Online where I was in the level design team. Then I spent uh, roughly three years at Huge Games, working on hyper-casual games and uh, casual puzzle games. And for the last two years, I am uh, the lead game designer for Dawn of Ages, which is a medieval auto-battler from Stratosphere Games. And I'm also very passionate about uh, level design, about game development and playing games in general, I would say, and aside of that, also into nature and hiking, I would say. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, I know for a fact all four of us are pretty excited about getting jumped into this one, so I'm not going to waste any time at all. Uh, Tobias, you can start us off with your topic, please. So you've posed the subtopic of what are the important design questions to answer to build an immersive world? So if you could just give us a little insight on why you chose that topic in particular and, and what it is that makes you passionate about it. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, I picked that because for me, like, there's a difference between, and I'm usually, I haven't, you know, there's no official name for this, what I'm going to say right now. It's like mechanical level design versus immersive level design, which mechanical being only ever focused on, you know, for example, metrics is a classic here, you know, you have covers is one meter high and one meter wide, and you make sure a player fits behind it, right? And you place those three meters apart, and every time that's mechanical level design, because you know exactly this is the metric. Uh, what immersive is, you know, the part where you also think about, okay, this cover is placed here because this wall fell over because someone, you know, took a sledgehammer and broke it. And um, so you also tell somehow the story of how the world built up because then you can get into the game and, you know, you, you get this like, oh, I feel this world is realistic. And when I say realistic, I also don't mean as in our world. Like if it's a fantasy world, it depends on the rule for that fantasy world. Like, you know, so it's not about being in reality as we see it. But yeah, that's why I picked that topic. Because I think it requires different design thinking than when you do the older uh, version where it's like more, you know, think about the next step. 
I like to talk, to call that believable. Like you want to build a world that is not realistic because like reality is like a simulation, not necessarily a game. But yeah. you want to build a world that is believable to the player and can act consistent in every regard. Yeah. Believable is actually a better term. Exactly. Yeah. So So <clears throat> uh, also like what what you said about uh this the narrative aspect of the environment further uh, earlier, really really like that. Because like when building an immersive world Especially in the early early stage of a project, um, I think it's very important that you kind of see the experience of the player as a whole. That you not only see like he's trying to shoot at people, so we need people to shoot at, and <laughs> another team is working on the world how that should be designed, and another team is working on the sound how that should be designed. But I think about what is the world we want to show, and what is the is um, the experience we want the player to have in that world, and that all in the team work together tightly to build an experience that is. And uh, very consistent that regard that narrative supports the gameplay, the gameplay supports the narrative, vice versa. And of course, also the visual style and supports the mood that the player should have at that point. I would yeah. like to add that, um, I think believability for me always comes with uh, reasoning. So me as a player, I'm able to uh, find reasons for why things are a certain way in the world, whatever I'm seeing, basically. And um, I remember also hearing this once, uh, it's like a technique for uh, story writing of South Park episodes or Simpsons or other adult comics. <laughs> like, sometimes they have really random situations uh, in these series, and the writers always try to keep in mind, yeah, like, this random strange thing happened because something else happened before. And then there's a whole chain of, of reasoning that... Uh, let lead basically to this certain situation that you have and i think as a designer we also have to go through this entire chain sort of build up a timeline for the world ask ourselves who are the people acting in this world and what are their characteristics because um we also affect the environment around us and we bring inherently our own characteristics so those should also be reflected in the world somehow yeah. that comes to my mind that really to trade on that my uh my opinion is the last of us because there we have this very strong world building behind that, um, and to see these different factions, to see how the um, how the enemies are affected by the virus and, or by the by the uh, sparse on the, the air, and by that they evolve and become different enemy types. So all this goes hand in hand. Like you have not just zombie designs, and they are just designs for themselves. They are built into this world entirely, and you see how the world reacts to the epidemic. Um, so I think that's a quite good example of that. Yeah, Naughty Dog in general is good at that. <clears throat> to build believable land, you know, good worlds in that sense. Um, yeah, because cause for me it's also about the build. Like, one of the design things why I asked this question while I had this sometimes it was also like, what we usually started with was like, you know, what's the world rules? And not the gameplay rules, but what's the world rules? Like, do we have gravity? Yes, we do. Is it similar to Earth? Yes, it is. Okay, that's a simple one. Then we know that, you know, stuff would fall when you lift them up and you throw them down meaning if someone breaks a wall it should fall downward um, and that that's for me was one of the like that's one of the design questions that I need to answer before you can go on and build an immersive world like because it's like you said uh, Mark where it's like you know they yeah you need people to shoot but why why is that person in that room then and how did they get in like if there's a closed door how did they actually go into it like you know are they sitting there just waiting for you <laughs> Um, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I do just think there's one thing that should come first. Like it's the common term to say gameplay goes first. Um, there are games where it sometimes feels a bit different there. So how do you approach that? Yeah, I, for me that's like 
it's getting harder and harder. So this is a like th- this is a, this might be a tangent. So please stop me, soul, if needed, um, <laughs> because like for me that like how we always said that like you know when when you think back about more like classical older games, it became more and more like you were you know because it was the mechanics that really drove the game. But if we look at modern games, I feel like that is slowly like you need still great mechanics, but it's no longer enough. And I don't mean that like negatively either. Like I don't want to, you know, call out anything specific with that. But it's like when I when you when I talk to other people, especially people that aren't devs, when I just generally talk with people, like what they get into is the whole game. Which means you need like even if you have the best shooting mechanic in the world, but the world ends up being really boring, like, it doesn't it, they won't stay with the game because they need the whole experience now. So I think the gameplay first is like it needs to be mechanically really working, but if you only focus on that first, I think you fall into a trap, which might not work. Because Naughty Dog, for example, you know, when you look at the documentary from Last of Us, they did not start with the gameplay. Like, they talk about that in the documentary, if I remember correctly, and you kind of need to you need to make sure you communicate and do it all at once. <laughs> which is scary, because a game is just getting so ridiculously difficult to make. Like they've always been difficult, but now we're also this. You know, what what was Red Dead Redemption Two? Like eight hundred people in there or something? Because they built a whole world and everything around it. Like, yeah. um, so you can still do it in smaller scale. I just mean that it just is one of those topics that blew up. Yeah, like the last one. Sorry, go first. Okay, uh, I think uh, the last game that I played like this where it really feels like man, they're both have it on the storytelling as well as the mechanics was uh, probably cyberpunk, I would say. I know it's a bit late uh, now, but at least a, l- a lot of people now know uh, what we're talking about. And there I felt like very much they start in the beginning with like, okay, this is our world here. Let's try to think a little bit into the future. Let's see what kind of innovations and inventions will affect society. And then like so many stories come out of that and you have inherently already in this world uh, potential and reason for conflict that explains why certain things are happening. And then obviously, I mean, the game team was probably giant on that and they worked for a really long time on it. Uh, so they could also really deliver on the mechanic side, I felt like. Yeah, I also love, like, coming back to the Red um, Redemption uh, example, that these games where you have the small mini-games inside of the game that support the entire world. Uh, if you can play card games with, with some dice in the bar or... Gambling, then uh, it feels like you can just do stuff that you would do in the world and still fun. Um, but that the world becomes more real as well, but that more immersive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting to hear the the cyberpunk reference because also if you look at trailers, they talk a lot about the world, right? Like here's old city, like you know those kind of trailers. So they also really focused on that. I feel like when you play it, um, which is also another thing you see, right, on that side. I mean, also I think for them like cyberpunk. Um, I didn't play it so much, but the, uh, I think the selling point or kind of the, the one, the, the point that gets people to play it is the world. Essentially want to experience that world. That makes sense to, um, kind of put a lot of emphasis on that. Because just saying we are, we are a shooter doesn't sell much, right? But, <clears> um, yeah. The, the new setting that makes it, makes it fun rather than makes it, uh, worth being played. Yeah. I even have like some way more fundamental question that is usually at the beginning of any kind of game development when you're not even thinking about world specifically, but just like the entire game. 
a question that always pops up is uh, what are actually the resources to create whatever you want to do in terms of uh, budget? How much money do you have? Uh, what kind of people are you working together with and what kind of skills are they bringing to the table? Um, even down to the tools, what kind of engine are you running and uh, finding out the limitations through that? Uh, thinking back to joining Sandbox Interactive and working on Albion Online, uh, at the beginning we were only like three level designers and we had to set up a MMO world for several thousand people that should all play on the same server, no instances, at least in the in the bigger part of the open world. And um, yeah, we really had to find ways how we can efficiently create this and then also maintain it in the long run and uh, also keep adding to it and the flexibility of all of that. Uh, are also very fundamental questions. I felt like uh, maybe Tobias, you also have experience like that from. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, citizen side, citizen, exactly. In the in the world, like in the on the multiplayer game, I think we were like six level designers, maybe seven when we were the most. I don't remember. So we also had to do that a lot. You know, like how would we make this simpler to make sure we can fill the world with things? Um, and and how can we? That also falls into it. Like, how do we keep them immersive enough? Like, you know, because it, it's like, it's one thing to say we want a modular tool and you get like, but if you get a modular tool that does really weird layouts, that breaks the immersion. Like, you know, no one would put, I don't know, the the restaurant on one side of a building and the, on the complete other side, like half a kilometer away, if the building is massive, the toilets. Like, that would make no sense. That if the modular tool does that for you, it breaks the immersion. Because you as a human would be like, this feels weird. Something's off. You might not be able to pinpoint it, like, as a player. But if you look at it, you would understand it. Because it just architecturally wouldn't make sense. And we've caught certain things. It's the, oh, now I forgot the term. The, the uncanny valley for, for level design, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> um, I was also thinking... Uh, once you have then like your fundamentals figured out and you know kind of like your limitations and uh, the boundaries that you're going to be working in, how do you align the whole team and everyone who is working on this project to have the same expectations and uh, drive towards the same vision and uh, exercise that I found very useful for young teams like this basically is um, creating a spectrum. If you want to say, for example, like, hey, how big should our open world actually be in terms of size? How long do I travel from one side to the other side? And then you start with, hey, okay, like on the one side here, we have like a very linear, small kind of, I mean, smaller in terms of uh, size that you can traverse in, for example, Doom on the one side, and then on the other side, uh, Red Dead Redemption, which is giant and takes you hours to walk from one side to the other side. And then in between you, put a bunch of games that people know from the team and uh, you kind of maybe you put it on a whiteboard or something like this and you, everyone like puts their position on it how they have their expectations and then you have something to look at and maybe from there you can have a conversation and see like where can you get this together and find a focus do you ever use something like that Mark? Um, that like first for straight bit that we're currently building I, I guess our situation there was a bit uh, special because when we started with that, I think we have been like five people, and then the team ramped up in China, uh, crazily. Like now we have 40 or something. Um, and, uh, so in the beginning, when we started working on that, it was mainly about like, what is our kind of building the project on the team and rather than, uh, having the project and selling it to the team because the team was small enough to just agree on what is our passion, what is our strong suit, and then, uh, building on that. So we had this, uh, animator in the team, but like, I think like 15 years. 
Fitzgerald's martial arts. Um, and all, I also did some, uh, some sword fighting and we had some boxer and like a lot of martial arts people in this, in this small team, uh, as well as some strong passion into kind of building, um, fantastic worlds and civilization. And so it became kind of quite clear on that, that it made sense to build a game that has a strong focus on combat, um, and a strong focus on cool martial arts animations, um, because that was kind of an advantage we had, essentially, and passion as well. Um, and then when people joined the team, that really, um, mainly became about like showing what is there and kind of setting this into context. But we already had a base to kind of to explain uh, what the goal is because we had already demoed everything already in place. Um, so, um, that was less about kind of getting this initial gear across rather than kind of defining um, where we want to go with that, um, further for the team. And, and there it became, um, mainly handy, of course, course, of course, building, building, uh, kind of this, um, this reference sheets and all that kind of stuff, but also, um, just kind of uh, doing overpaints and all this. Um, that needs because they kind of give a very quick impression on what the idea is, and you can serve a lot of stuff with the words, but pictures are better in many cases, of course. Totally, I agree. That's why I'm always trying to work with people that also play a lot because it makes like you just get a, a bunch of gaming literacy, if you want to call it that way, and uh, it's just easier to communicate that way because you don't need to explain so much. And then I guess for the last bit, pictures always help. Cheers, that guy's really interesting points made there. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, the Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Going to jump into your topic just next, just to shake this up a little. So you've posed the subtopic of realism versus convenience. How to compromise without sacrificing immersion. Uh, firstly, really well-worded subtopic. Have you done this before? No, I have not. But it's, uh, I guess, a question that I was confronted with in my career also several times. And uh, I thought of some examples just to give you guys a hunch of what we're talking about here. Um, you think of certain features that a game has. For example, in open worlds, you're often traversing terrains go small whatever and uh how do you do that and uh where does the game stick to realism and where does it allow you convenience and um i thought of gta where you can basically drive around in the city and buy whatever property and once you bought it you can uh, fast travel there at any time you want uh, so the game is giving you uh, the opportunity for convenience and then i saw on the contrary another game uh, death stranding which also has a big open world. But this game is uh, much more about traversing than GTA, I would say, because you're basically playing a delivery person. And there is no fast travel. Every time you go from A to B, you need to plan your routes carefully. And uh, the more often times you do this, uh, paths basically start appearing um, on the surface 
that you walk over several times. And then this is another way how the game basically gives you convenience for terrain traversal. But in a different way than GTA. And I don't think there's a, like a right or wrong answer here. I was just like uh, curious to talk about the topic. I, I have a couple more examples actually. Um, crafting uh, is also a very popular feature in many games. And I played a game recently, a smaller one called Potion Crafter. is on Steam and the Xbox Game Pass. And in that game, uh, you're basically playing the day of a alchemist and in the morning you go into your backyard and you pick a bunch of uh, herbs and mushrooms and roots and whatnot and then you go ahead and uh, put them in your cauldron and you have to try and fail a lot of times until you arrive at a let's say healing potion for example that you can then sell off to the customers that are coming every day uh, so they put about a lot of um realism on this tinkering until you have the right recipe for a potion and uh once you found that you can actually save that recipe and then recraft it over and over again which then gives you convenience basically and uh, i found that one interesting approach to crafting because it was very different to how we did it in albion online um where you also have a lot of crafting there's a player-based uh, economy so every item in the game is actually crafted by a player but crafting here works very differently. Basically, players will have to venture out into the world and collect all kinds of ingredients and then bring them back to the city, uh, go to a crafting station, and then just press the crafting button. So there's no trial and error in that, basically, but therefore more in finding all the ingredients and parts that you need to get to craft whatever it is that you want to do, basically. And uh, I have two other examples, but I think I would like to hear your guys' comments first on this how do you balance realism versus convenience? So, do you want to go first, Mark? <laughs> um, so, like, uh, it, uh, of course, it always depends on the game and on the target group and kind of the goal you have for the game. But when when you said crafting, a uh, type of game that uh, came into my mind was the survival game genre because they have this special special situation where you want this realistic feeling, but you also do not want it. So, like, when you think about Sons of the Forest, for example, maybe you've played that. Um, they kind of, you are, um, chopping down trees, collecting wood, building your hut, and you want this feeling of, I'm really doing this, like, I'm a survivor, but chopping down a wood takes you, like, half a minute, maybe, not even, um, while doing this in real life would take maybe half an hour or something, but that's more actually that there. Um, so, like, you want this feeling and the reward of it, or the kind of, for, the, for their target group, at least, um, but this feeling of reward and you, this feeling of accomplishment, um, but not the feeling of kind of tedious effort. Um, so, um, you want kind of the, the, the positive sides of the realism. And then, and as soon as stuff becomes inconvenient, not just very good reasons to have that in your game, I think. Um, because there, the inconvenience needs to be part of the game as a build up for the reward, essentially. Like you have more, you accept as a player more inconvenience to get a higher feeling of reward. Um, and by that, it kind of, it stays fun. But if you have just all this inconvenience for this tiny little stick you have in your hand afterwards, um, that's not fun anymore. So I think um, you need the right balance in that, re that direction. Well, the game we are right now doing, it's a stylish fantasy game, right? We have quite some freedom there in that regard. Um, so there again, it's mainly about like um, having uh, drafting as a process of um, you you collect your stuff, but you um, but of course you would not kind of... That, that's it's a, exactly a good example actually as well. That in, in our game, you also kind of collect your stuff, and then you craft it. You have some nice crafting process, but trick and then you get your weapon. Um, and the the main adventure is about kind of finding the blueprints for it and finding the crafting 
uh, equipment for it, and then finding the, the, the forest and all that stuff. But for example, you should think about Tindin family deliverance, um, which is way more realistic. Remember, they have the sequence where you really have to have to first kind of get your iron, then you warm up the iron, then you kind of trench it down to to some better shape for your sword. Then you have to um, have to forge it, have to cool it down again. So kinda, this whole forging process was, was done realistically. Became a lot more, a uh, lot longer by that. But for this realistic approach that the game had, kind of having a target audience of medieval nerds, essentially, it was great. Um, because they loved this real pro process that is behind crafting the sword, but that would maybe not have worked for other players. But of course, also a question about the target audience. For me, this is kind of a, so, so th this is what I meant earlier as I was going to say, like, you don't really smooth depends on the world you build. So like, the day with the fast traveling, like as long as that's the the rule of the world, and you explain that to the player, that's the rule of the world. Like that, like if you do it immerse, you know, a good job on the immersiveness, you can. I, you, I in my mind, you could break any of the real world, you know, the world we're sitting in rules, as long as the world you're playing in explains it enough to make you feel like, yeah, of course, this is just the world here. Like you know. I think Dishonored is a good example of a game that does it really well. They have this, you know, they have really cool, <clears throat> complicated level design in the sense of like, you know, a room can switch to something completely different because you pulled a lever and now it flips around the bed and it does this thing. And like that, for that world, that feels just real. So for me, it's like, it doesn't break the realism of that world. Like, I think that's where, where it like, I mean, because I fully agree with what you said, Mark. Like, it's also, if something becomes too inconvenient, people, people don't like it like depending on your market right but but i think when you do this you just need to make sure you build it to make sure you stick to the rules of your own world like don't break those because that's when the players also drop out of the flow of the game like if if we do a shooting game and suddenly someone comes with a staff and throws a, a, a magical thing at you you're like wait what like i was i thought i was playing you know call of duty like that would have just you stop like sometimes you want to do a big surprise for the player, but that would just break the world too much, and you would just feel like hook, and that would stop you. So I think what I think this is a pretty common term as well. Like you just need to keep it grounded. So there needs to be something for players to recognize. Otherwise, it's hard to believe in a world because our minds just like complete hundred percent fantasy is pretty difficult to to grasp. But if you keep, you know, it's really simple example. If you do a car and it's similar to a car people kind of recognize it as a car and that but then it doesn't matter if the car is flying or not like because it's still in our minds we still understand that yeah this is a car you know um that that that's how i like tend to approach this and what i also think for me is what's important in other games as long as the world rules are in the corner they're fine to do whatever they want as long as they stay within their corner especially for fast travel often see like how uh how Kind of that gets solved by just saying, yeah, you just here once, you put it there another time, and that's kind of about it. So, um, about the, the Tomb Raider games, for example, um, but I think it's for many games out there, like you, uh, you have a fireplace or some rune spot or whatever, um, something you interact with, and you kind of, as, as, as you have reached that, uh, you don't reach that again, it's just, essentially, it's just a safe space. So it kind of, you don't have to go through the whole journey again to reach that again. Um, and I also love the games where that, uh, has more explanation. Like if you, um, don't know if that would be a, kind of, for example, if you could, um, fast travel each car, for example, like, yeah, here's a car, so I could use that to get there. Um, or it's, um, or it would fast travel at each, um, kind of, there's a floating balloon or something. Like, 
whatever it was, the torch where they drawed. Um, and uh, that will bring you there. Maybe you just even have to pay a bit of, of money for that in the game. So you have this feeling of, yeah, I'm paying for just getting there faster. I really love it playing, uh, when games are doing that, but I don't see it that often, to be honest. Yeah. I think Cyberpunk, again, just to combine that, did an interesting sample call, right? Because I think you go to a bus stop. Like, like so you know, so you're like, oh, it's the bus. Like, it still fast travels you. You don't actually, like, get on a bus or anything like that. But yeah. it, it's the same there. It's like, it's explained as, like, yeah, of course, you know. It's a little bit like being a kid falling asleep in the car when your parents drive and you wake up <laughs> and you're home, right? Like, it's like, that's our fast travel. It's like, oh, nice. Like, I'm home. I'm in bed. Nice, you know. I wish I had that again, for sure. <laughs> I had uh, one more example, actually, where I felt like they were breaking immersion a little bit. So uh, for then, I think I have to go back a little bit because I've been uh, a huge uh, Command & Conquer fan all my life. Basically, I've been playing RTS a lot um, back in the days. And uh, at some point, auto-battlers started um, popping up. And the first time I played an auto-battler, I was... Well, first, a little bit surprised about of like how little control I actually have while the combat is going on, right? It's more about the preparation of choosing the right uh, units with the right equipment and putting them in a, in a good formation or something like that, like in Lords Mobile, for example. And um, it doesn't feel like an RTS anymore where you're constantly under time pressure and every interaction that you do feels very meaningful in a way. But now it's more like, okay, it's a more relaxed puzzle experience. And then you kind of just see the outcome after the, the battle has basically played itself, kind of. And um, there was one game, also auto-battler, called uh, Battle Legion, that also introduces itself rather like a puzzle game in the beginning. But then at some point... Um, you are, they're introducing this feature of uh, spin tokens, that's how they call it, and it basically allows you to play several battles after another without you having to do any interaction with it. And then I started feeling like this is really breaking my immersion now because uh, there's not so much even of a puzzle effect anymore. It's just about number of uh, battles that I play and the power of the army that I put up. And then I felt like, okay, now it's actually an idle game and they have almost no strategic depth anymore at some point. And I felt like with these spin tokens, they added so much convenience into the game that it actually broke the immersion for me. But I also don't think that immersion is the point for these games, to be honest. Um, like I, I think these games are made for you being not 100% inside of the game. And that's why it's so you want this as a side uh kind of something that, that you do on the site essentially um so why you are not not sure like if you are in the train but you still have to kind of watch out for other people or hopefully not when you're in the car um and uh if, or if you are listening to some boring prof in the university um you can do this on the site and still kind of be also in real life at, at the same time and just get this um kind of get a bit more to do for your brain but not too much Essentially, um, so uh, I think that's kind of the, the target of that, and for that they're doing doing a great job because they give you this feeling of reward from time to time. So you feel better, um, like the game, and you still can do the other thing that you just currently have to do that is boring. Yeah. So immersion in that regard is not that like uh, it's not really the goal of it. It's more like giving you something to do on the side. I agree, hundred percent, and that's also the understanding that I arrived with at, in the end uh, and then just reflected on myself and was like oh, I just came in with like very different expectations <clears throat> because in RTSs you need to be very focused all the time and um, 
it is a lot more immersive experience, I would say, than a mobile progression game. I mean, it's it's same like if you think football is a football manager, right? That's more a numbers game. You're like going, you plan, but then the match plays out. Like, you know, back in the day, I never played it, to be honest, but a few friends of mine did, so they played quite a lot. But like, back in the days, they didn't even have. Nowadays, I think you can watch a video of the match playing out as well. Like, but back in the days, they couldn't. So then it was literally like an Excel sheet that just at some point just gave you like, oh, you won or you lost. Like, you know, um, and I, I agree with what you said, where it's like, that's more, uh, it's on the side. Like I'm sitting doing something else. I'm cooking dinner and I want to at least do something at the same time. And I put it on like, I, and I focus on it for a certain amount of time. Then I kind of leave it to do its thing while I finish my other thing. And then I go back to it. You shouldn't recommend doing it. It's will die. Don't, don't <laughs> do that on a podcast. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's funny though, because I think once you then jump into clans, and that also goes for a lot of other Forex games, um, I feel like then the game becomes more immersive again, but the immersion is not necessarily coming out of the game itself or its systems or its narration, but it's more coming out of the community of the people that you play with and that you need to coordinate with. And suddenly it feels like the game is, um, having more control over your life or you're trying to adapt to it more and therefore it becomes more immersive this way. And also, yeah. I think that um, when when these games are doing a really good job, you get this feeling of I'm here in my world, but kind of behind this small window on my on my smartphone or my PC, there is this other world that exists, and I'm just doing some touches in there times to times, and kind of influence it. But it, it, it exists on the side. I think that's something that mobile games do quite often when you have these timers, right, where, where you do something and then they say, yeah, it's getting crafted now for some hours. You can do do something else. Because that's similar to what you expect, um, experience in real life as well, that you, something just takes time. So it also takes time in the mobile game to do something else in between. And by that, it kind of melts together with your daily life a bit, um, becomes, uh, just kind of not, not an immersion for itself, kind of taking you out of real life, but becoming part of your real life essentially. And, uh, that's, it's kind of, it's actually really smart, I think. Yeah. Super interesting, uh, point of view. I think Tobias, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I think I, it's similar to what Mark said. Like, I think it's important to like differentiate. Like, a game can be immersive in different ways, right? Like, it could be what you said with your, your experience with Cyberpunk, where you get into that world. Like, I live here now. You know, that where you really wanted to stay there on your PC, for example, right? But, but also exactly what Mark said, where like, it could also be immersive because it's like, it's just part of my daily routine. That's still like a kind of immersiveness. Um, and it just depends on what you're after. Um, in terms of like when you design your game, right? You need to think about, is it a passive immersion or is it one of these, those last of us again is a good example where the world is, it's just there and you, and it's scary how, how you feel like, oh, this could happen. Like, you know, <laughs> and that, that type, kind of immersion instead. Um, so yeah. Thinking about it a bit longer, I even found like a, a third way, uh, thinking back to a game called, uh, Stanley Parable. I don't know yeah. if you guys played it. Uh, when playing that game, I felt like at some point the game was playing with me and it was a very interesting, uh, mind blow, I would say. Uh, that's uh, if you haven't played it yourself, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, yeah, everyone give that a try. It's a good, it's a really good, especially in sense of immersion. It's a really interesting experience because what you said where like, it feels like the game is playing you rather than you playing the game to some degree. Like, yeah, usually we are being faced in games with challenges that we're trying to somehow outsmart, but in this game it feels like the different way around. Like every 
every strategy that you come up with, everything that you want to try, it feels like the game already predicted in a way and uh, foresaw it and, and puts another spin on you, kind of. Well, they're kind of interesting. Uh, just to answer my own question here, because obviously thinking about that question so much, I also try to come up with some sort of a conclusion for myself, how to balance uh, realism versus convenience and uh, not compromising immersion. And I think you guys mentioned already a bunch of points. But what I found for myself is that you need to focus on a fresh and exciting experience that is, uh, doesn't necessarily have to be convenient, but once it starts becoming repetitive, the excitement and the freshness obviously fades away. And then we need, uh, the more convenient experience to not get bored of the game with endless repetition. But, uh, for whatever shortcut we are offering to, to get more convenience to do whatever it is we want to do, there needs to be reasoning. For example, like you said, uh, Tobias, getting on the bus or things like that. Awesome. Thank you, guys. We'll wrap that subtopic up there and jump into Mark. Um, we're going to go into your topic next on balancing complexity. How do we find the sweet spot to keep players in the flow? Really interesting again, because you give us a bit of an insight on why you chose that one in particular, Mark. Yeah, sure. So uh, I think like uh, talking about flow, um, and I think flow as this the spot where um, your, your challenge um, exactly fits your um, your abilities essentially um, or your skill. Um, and when uh, the player is kind of in the state where the, the the challenge is increasing, the skill is increasing, and that's kind of doing hand in hand. And with that, there's always the split. Um, Good spot between the challenge and the reward you get, but that you kind of get further and further and, um, you forget the world around you. And, uh, this state of flow is a very core element of immersion by that, I think. Um, because, um, that in the moment the, the flow breaks, the game breaks essentially, and you are all fit and kind of at this exit point of, oh, that, that was off for, for whatever reason. Um, this challenge was too big in, a, in an unwanted, uh, way, not the dark side way necessarily. Um, or I, or it becomes boring. So I'm just underwhelmed by, by the difficulty. Um, and these are the moments where you are like, hmm. but at the end, it's also not real, right? So, so maybe I just, uh, I'm just bad at it or it's, um, I'm just, I'm too good at it, but it's definitely not a real state. Um, so, um, keeping players in this flow, um, I think it's one challenge for all kind of all aspects of games um for art for gameplay for for narrative for everything to kind of keep the interest of the player um and make stuff feel detailed but not overwhelming and that's extremely difficult because players are very different um so to have this balance where each player in the end ideally each player feels like this is the right right amount of challenge and the right amount of complexity is um quite a challenge in game development so um turn from the outside from my perspective um it's um, that stylization gives you a lot of freedom in that regard. And, um, if you kind of, for example, start off with a place that is hard to interpret, that's already a bad idea. Of course, stylization uses, um, style a lot to make the world easier to be understood, essentially. Um, kind of having cleaner shapes, having easier to read shapes. And by that, make it, um, cleaner for the player to understand what he's seeing and concentrate on what he wants to do. Um, I think that can be very helpful in that regard. And so I'm very interested to hear Tana from some other perspectives how complexity um gets used or Tana is a challenge um to keep the players on the flow. That that is a really complicated question in a good way. Um like because they so like you need to solve it different, right? Like um depending on the game you do. I think the the art one is really interesting. Like I agree with you that with stylized stuff you do this to some degree, right? You you change it to make it more readable and things. I mean, I think it's Resident Evil 4, the original one, 
they also did it right with the they they inc- that was the first Resident Evil I believe that had this um the no difficulty thing and they adapted it to you so they counted like how many bullets did you uh, you know shoot to kill this many enemies oh that probably means you missed 80% of your bullets we should probably make it easier for you because they also wanted you to stay in the flow and I mean that was really successful seeing how people really liked the game and a f- very few people figured out that they did that to you um, but I think it's a super complicated, like you need to take the game mechanics and your target audience, obviously, and see what, how you can find ways to help them stay there. Um, but I don't think there's a, like a one nice answer for this, of course. I mean, any questions we asked in this podcast right now hasn't had a one answer that's nice. It's more that this is a really big one. I'm just like, there's so, so much you need to do. <laughs> um, yeah. but I think keeping it something that, that, tend to help is obviously keeping it um, again coherent right keeping it similar like don't change up stuff too much too fast stuff like that um, you know you don't want to go from oh I just met four zombies to I met four chainsaw guys <laughs> let me tell you know, that Tobias uh, because I played a game recently where I felt like this was not balanced uh, very nicely that was Atomic Heart a game that I actually enjoyed quite a lot starts out um, quite linear, I would say. And at some point, uh, you are also being introduced to like a bigger area, semi-open-world-ish kind of uh, thing. And um, they put a lot of like uh, weapon blueprints and like nice little Easter eggs or side stuff uh, in this, basically, for you to discover. But when I came there, I didn't really feel like this is what I wanted even to do. I feel like they... From a linear experience to this uh, open world, go find your own stuff here, uh, was too big of a change for me. And I actually left all these extra weapons and everything just laying on the side and just uh, took on with the main quest and uh, went kind of straight straight onward. And uh, when I was done with the game, I was looking at this and was thinking, like, why did they put this big uh, open area in there for me to discover stuff when they could have just given me these guns uh, after a certain mission, like in Doom, for example, or something like that. Hence, there was a bunch of um, contents that someone designed and people implemented and put effort into it, and I never even got to experience it simply because I felt like uh, the complexity was not balanced well in that regard. It seems like ramping up the complexity is a quite important part, right? Um, if you did everything in the first part, I just do trees are a good example for that. Um, so it's like there, there, there are like two types. Either the whole steel tree is visible at, uh, in the first uh, moment already. You have to read all the stills, build up your build, and that's for new players. This can be very overwhelming. Then there are still things where you have like your, your base, and you have like two stills at first. Like choose one of two, and that's the whole decision you have to make there. And all of the rest gets revealed piece by piece. Then um, to never have uh, overwhelming for a player and kind of hit the complexity at the right level. Um, and so as Tobias said, like uh, the decision to take in it feels like in each single part of the game. Um, about like how much do we want to give to the player and uh, how much should we keep for later to not overwhelm it. Yeah, yeah, it's like because definitely like the target group there becomes really important, right? Because it's like if you aim for the Dark Soul target, like you know you want something that is really difficult and it doesn't have to be perfectly balanced because they expect it to just be insane jumps, right? Like they're fine with that and they can get really immersive into it but it fits that target group while you know myself 
I played Dark Souls once and I never got very far and I never got into it because I, I want that more like, you know, that we just discussed where it's like a little bit nicer. I get calmed into it and that's how they keep me in a flow. But Dark Souls obviously didn't have me in mind when they did the game, right? Like, and, and I think that becomes really important then uh, when you reach that step. Agreed. I also wanted to add to something that uh, you said, Mark, earlier about ramping up complexity. I think the complexity should definitely ramp up over the course of the game. Otherwise, we get uh, too bored too quickly. But it's also a bit about setting the expectations for what is going to be revealed later on. And for example, when I come back to open world, I think about like all the Ubisoft games now, and they usually give you in the beginning also open niche world in a much smaller scale that's basically your tutorial and after that you go to the big open world but it's still all open worlds in this case of atomic heart i felt like ah okay this is bioshock kind of it's a linear experience and then this came in in an unexpected way and i didn't even feel like it made the game better or i was like yeah having more fun because of it i think an interesting example is uh did you play play uh, dark siders one first title um i think that was that they kind of the first moments of the game they gave you everything essentially like they give, they give you all the skills all the equipment um as far as i remember at least like they give you all the power and then they take it from you um so they give you this kind of um they they want to give you some feeling of overwhelmment like there's so much i can do there's so much skills i have and so much power i have um and then they take it from you and you start off like having nothing again um, and then you piece by piece have to get, have to get this back. That was also a very interesting approach, I think. Um, because like in the first part, it, it, it drives off super fast because like you have to learn all the skills immediately. But of course, the enemies are not that difficult. So you don't, do not die from it if you do mistakes. Um, and, uh, then they take it from you and then you learn this piece by piece. And the end, you have the same skill set, but harder enemies. Which is quite smart as well because they have a very specific goal to aim for all the time, all the time. But they want to be this very powerful person from the start again. And still, they had this moment where you had everything in the first place, um, in the first moment of the game already. And that, that worked was interesting, I think. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, I mean, I think, I think Metroid also does that like pretty consistently across I haven't I don't remember all of the games now, but I think the GameCube one that was just released on Switch, um, for example, there they also do that. Like you start with everything. You're like and then you lose it and you're you know and that's a you know, it's a cool foreshadowing, right? Of like how powerful can I be? And then you get to do that. Um and I, I think that works when they're like I think the only limitation that I, I consider when when doing something like that when I think about that design is like that works when you're not, for example, a Final Fantasy, where you might have a skill tree that's, you know, 400 different things. Because then it's like, yeah. here you go, here you have everything. And then you're like, I think I could learn five. Like, you know, you're like, you get into that. And so, so again, every, it will come so much down to your, like, target organs and mechanics, how you can make sure you keep the flow. Like, so you will have to think of different rules depending on what you're after in that, that you know. It's going to be a daily, like, okay, how do we make sure this happens? <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to also talk about more about that since we now mentioned a bunch of games and see how they are balancing their complexity. But how do we do it as uh, designers? What's our process there? And for me personally, it usually starts with a target persona where you try to imagine the person that is going to play the game eventually. Then uh, whatever I build, I will test and play myself 
I mean, obviously I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the target persona. I'm trying to immerse myself into similar games that they enjoy playing. So I have a little bit of a reference and then whatever I create, I play myself a lot, really, really a lot, a lot and I try to follow my intuition as, as good as possible. And once I'm happy with that, I will obviously try to, uh, receive feedback from outside. So mostly focus tests. And I would usually start with peers. It's directly the game designers that I work with, but then also other team members and then even peers from, from other teams. Um, if the game is already live, I would definitely try to connect with the player somehow. If there's already a community on Discord or something or elsewise, uh, reachable in the game, that is ideal. Those people are the ones you want to ask for sure. But uh, those are usually already your most engaged players and uh, way into the game. They like it already. Sometimes you need a bit of a fresh perspective. And then I like to use uh, two called playtest clouds where you can basically target strangers uh, that sign up for this program. I think they're coming from UK, Canada and US or something like that. They basically uh, download your game and play it and record themselves while they're doing it. And that helps me a lot to see where... I'm breaking the flow with the experience that I created so far and where I can optimize. And uh, eventually, when I'm really happy with everything, I will, of course, also proudly show it uh, to friends. But the feedback from them has to be taken always with a grain of salt because they have a personal relationship to you and uh, that's always a bit different than uh, your regular player in a way. And uh, as a very last uh, tool, mostly just used for free-to-play games, but could also be applied to any kind of game, I guess, is data analysis, just tracking all kinds of events and seeing where people drop off. What do you guys, what do you guys use in your process? I, I think I'm almost one to one with what you said. Like, it, it's the, the stuff I also do, right? Like that. Especially that, like, if you can have a reference game, which 2023, it's really hard to say there's literally no reference game for a game you're making because there's so many different type of games that, like, you're going to have to find something pretty unique to, to have no other reference to, you know, at least play and get a feeling for. I'm not saying you like, you know, like you said, with Atomic Arch is pretty close to, to Bioshock. Like, they probably had that a reference game, but it doesn't mean it's Bioshock, right? Like, in the end, um, or I assume they have that. I haven't played it myself, to be honest. But like, um, but otherwise, it, that that's what also what I do. Especially the playtesting. Playtesting is without playtesting you. You know, your own brain tricks you pretty quickly, especially when doing level design, because at some point the level is so easy for you that you're just like, oh, you just add more harder enemies because it's so easy. And then you don't think about that. Yeah, but I played this 400 times in the last two days. Like, yeah. it's probably not going to be that it's next person. Uh, you yeah. know, that's the common junior mistake. So. <laughs> also, also talking about level design, like, um, also, the, the first dates of level design, it's not even that much about like the specific enemies that are getting uh, hit there, but it's about orientation and all that kind of stuff and understanding what the actual location is that you're in. And as soon as you kind of date this once and probably have an understanding of what, where you are and what your goal is, um, you're kind of biased, I think. Like this, this, yes, do the first impression. Um, you only have this once. So, I mean, new and new testers all the time, um, that you can. Uh, have it as a tester is super valuable um, because by that you get to know that somebody doesn't have a clue sees that for the first time. Um, where does it go and what does he understand and where are the issues? Awesome, thank you guys. We're going to jump into one final topic to, to round this discussion up today. So we'll be jumping into the subtopic of how do we keep art of an older game fresh and what are the challenges of this? You know, from my understanding of the industry as well, it's, it's incredibly um, 
quick in the way that it evolves and grows the tools and the systems that you guys use um, within your companies obviously is changing all the time and new games are coming out so I'm really interested to hear what the sort of challenges you guys have faced uh, in your career so far in terms of actually keeping your games fresh and immersive to uh, able to start um, so for me there are uh, essentially like two solutions for that depending on the game a bit because um, like um, talking about Silas games um, there um, it feels quite obvious like the solution being that we want a style that is just appealing and beautiful um, independent on the hardware essentially so when hardware gets stronger um, and kind of the expectations become higher for, for art, um, it still needs to feel like an art set that is appealing. Um, and for stylization, um, that mainly means like most likely production quality will increase over the years and amount of detail that can be shown will be will increase over the years. Um, but if your, your textures and everything, the, the, your shape language is just nice art and well composition, composition, it will still feel beautiful um, independent on the technical um, abilities. And when you're doing for a realistic game, that becomes a bit harder because like when you're aiming for realism, um, of course, that depends on hardware power at some point, um, how complex the shaders can be and all that kind of stuff. And the only solution that comes to my mind there is like aim higher than the current average. So like, um, when, if you want to build something that is realistic, then build it so that it works for the um, kind of best graphic charts out there. Um, and so later when they become average, more people can access this highest level of detail. Um, that's something that, for example, Crisis 3 did, I think, like it's at a time. It's no, not many people could play this on the highest settings because the hardware was limited um, for the average player. But now it still looks good because now the average hardware can play this. So, um, by, by kind of having the, the ramp up of technical abilities for, for the lighting complexity and all that kind of stuff, um, it can still look good after a lot of years. Um, if that was already built with that in mind, that the lighting is able to ramp up and become better with better hardware. Absolutely. I was even surprised that to see that they remastered, uh, the whole crisis yeah. series, which I thought like it still looked amazing because they set their standards so high back then that even this, uh, but does it run crisis became like a running gag in the industry kind of. Um, do you want to go first to us? Uh, yeah, I mean, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Like, especially, like, picking a stylized helps you age, like, the game, if you do a good job of it. Like, think, I mean, maybe this is just me thinking, but it looks like on the internet that I'm not alone, but think Yet's Radio, which was an old 2000 Dreamcast game. But even today, that when you jump into it, you're like, oh, this looks good. Because it's just, like, it's not something time-specific, it's not realistic, it's like that. Um, well, you know, you see in other games that they have eight. <laughs> and realism is a really hard one. Like, you can, unless you're, uh, you know, you keep updating your art assets, that's going to be difficult. And at some point, it will feel older because realism, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the next 10 years does, but, you know, I, I, this is just funny coincidence that, like, yesterday I was cleaning out some old magazines and I found a magazine where it said, Colin McRae 2, the ultra realistic game and like the, the car is almost a square because it's like PlayStation 1. That didn't age well, right? Like if you look at that today, you will feel like, yeah, that has not aged well. And there you, you know, it's really difficult how you would solve that. Like even if you plan for the future, the future at some point will be old. While like if we think a hundred years in the future, yet the trade will probably still look cool because the art style isn't defined to be so hardware resistant. There are probably ways to do it with realism, but 
I think it's going to be a lot more difficult, like, and cost you a lot more time than figuring out, like, you know, and maybe now we're getting AI. Maybe you can get an AI that you update your textures every 10 years. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, I think, I think it's, that is a super difficult one if you want to keep a realistic game alive for a long time. Uh, yeah, I would like to add to the other challenges that I see with uh, keeping your game fresh and its art is um, trying to figure ahead about what players will actually like whatever you introduce to the game if you update something will will they like it? I mean in the terms of just upscaling resolution of the textures, sure everyone will like that but um, if you're bringing more different elements or different creators into your game, will Will the players like that? Can you see ahead of that? I think that's always kind of a challenge. It helps to talk to the players directly, of course, but you always have to put a bet somehow, kind of. And then with whatever it is that you're introducing, also, can you maintain the identity of the game or will it change so much that uh, it alternates like your core player base? That is, of course, not what you want. And then lastly, in terms of challenges, uh, a bit more meta, I guess, is just keeping keep optimizing your tool set and the workflows that you have just to make uh, working with the game in terms of uh, creation and business just uh, easier and more efficient and then how do we do all that um first point that i noted for that was uh, having a flexible art direction and have to think of a game that i'm playing a lot lately uh, that achieved this quite well i think is uh, marvel snap which is a trading card battle game and they monetize a lot on skins for these cards so the power never really increases of the cards but how they look and uh, they go really wild with that you will find also anime cards even though marvel per se is not anime or they invite different artists to take their personal spin on whatever character it is from the marvel universe that uh, has a card in that game and uh, other games as well for example fortnite has added so many different characters from other universes by now. Uh, way more than they had at the beginning. And somehow they still managed to keep the identity of Fortnite alive, I feel like. Uh, last example I have in that regard is uh, League of Legends, where the characters also follow kind of different art directions. Like some of them look more badass, others are more cute, some of them are medieval knights versus others are more sci-fi in a way. So... Having that flexibility, I feel like, really allows you to keep the game fresh and uh, add stuff to it without destroying the identity of the game, basically. And then, basically, just keep adding new assets to the game constantly. Uh, you can do map changes, just like in Fortnite. You can optimize the UI. You can have seasonal backgrounds, like in Apex Legends, for example. You can have event cosmetics that are only obtainable during a certain time and... Uh, since you don't see everyone running around with these cosmetics, it uh, also helps to keep the game fresh for longer, I would say. And eventually, when you really run out of uh, ideas, I would say just release a sequel. It worked perfectly <laughs> for FIFA. I mean, it's just it's still soccer, but now maybe the the menu soundtrack is a new one. That's a way for them to keep uh, keep the game fresh. Uh, Call of Duty is doing the same, even now with uh, Warzone 2, Counter-Strike just uh, announced their Counter-Strike 2, Overwatch already released their Overwatch 2, and it's still the same game. It just looks a bit fresher, <laughs> and it has a 2 behind now. <laughs> awesome, thank you. Any final points on that topic, gentlemen? No, I think, from my side, Adrian really summarised it. <laughs> yeah, 
Thank you very much, guys. Okay, we'll we'll wrap up the podcast there. Um, really good episode today. Thank you very much for listening to the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. And a massive thank you to our panel today, of course, as well. Adrian, Mark, Tobias, you've been absolutely amazing. Thank you for lending your time and providing your insights into these topics. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to welcoming you again very soon.